Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. Welcome back to the Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And today we have an absolutely amazing episode for you. This is an exclusive look behind the scenes of the buy side recruiting process. And today we're specifically going to be talking about private equity. We're going to be speaking with Kate Corliss and Cameron Bullon from Go Buy Side, which is a recruiting firm, which you probably have heard of as headhunters. Mm -hmm. That is revolutionizing the way that candidates gain access to the most competitive jobs on Wall Street. And if this is your first time listening, we are two lifelong friends with a combined 23 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street. Our mission is to demystify the financial services industry and to democratize access to some of the most elite careers in the world. But before we get going, Kristen, how you doing? I know you have some exciting news to share with our listeners. <laughs> well, it's not that exciting. It's just I feel like we got the most amazing crossover. We've been trying to make Bravo and finance somehow collide, and like they just did. So <laughs> what a gift in the universe. I know. Well, so we obviously are a little bit more into the Real Housewives of Name Your City than we should be. But so they have this New York reboot so mm, they have the old like new york's yeah you need to watch it it's i mean it's good it's whatever it, it's a bravo show but in this latest season the drama at the end was focused on this one housewife uba who by the way these days i mean she's not a housewife most of the characters they're like single or they're divorced like they're not a housewife right right, but right yeah she's a model but uh -huh. she said she was single and then turns out she actually was dating some secret boyfriend who she called mr connecticut and turns out, Mr. Connecticut, it was revealed yesterday or the day before that he is actually a, uh, a Jeffrey's investment banker, Oliver Dashell. Or no, Oliver Dashell. Uh, I think M&A. So mm. we, we literally had people who messaged us on uh, Instagram and they were like, please talk about this on the podcast. So <laughs> we had to bring this up. And New York Housewives, any housewife show, it is such a mindless, but also really easy watch. So if you haven't watched it, it's fun. It's fun the and way it's fluff. I've been unplugging my brain lately. I've been rewatching Southern Charm from the beginning. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so speaking of M&A, if you are <laughs> someone who is pursuing a career in the private equity world, you might be starting your career off in M&A, maybe working mm -hmm. for the- I know, maybe working for of, uh... <laughs> Mr. Oliver. But so one of the things that I think we've touched on in previous episodes a little bit is- Many of our listeners are looking for a long-term career on the buy side, on the investing side, whether it be in private equity, at a hedge fund, at an asset manager. And there are many different paths to get there. But one key part of that process may end up being working with a recruiting firm. And so today we wanted to talk about how recruiting firms work, 
what the on-cycle and we're going to also touch on the off-cycle recruiting processes look like for private equity. We're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of items I know you're all curious about, like pay structure, how to talk about compensation, questions to ask in interviews, and what the interview process actually looks like so you can start preparing. And there's a lot that we're going to want to get through. So we're actually going to be doing a multi-part series here. Today, our focus is on what's called on-cycle recruiting. We will touch high level on some of the specifics of off-cycle, but it's going to really be focused on on on-cycle recruiting. We are going to have Cam and Kate back on to talk in another episode about off-cycle PE recruiting, as well as hedge fund recruiting, specifically for equity long short positions. So that's going to be a lot of fun as well. But today, the focus is on on on-cycle private equity recruiting because it is the most rigid, most structured formal process. Awesome. All right. Well, let's bring them on. Today, we are so excited to be talking with Kate and Cam from Go Buy Side, an executive search firm, also often referred to as a headhunting firm that works with candidates who are looking to move from like a two-year analyst role in investment banking, capital I, capital B, D, (laughs) into private equity or into equity long short funds. Actually, let me just set the stage. I actually know Kate from, we worked together back in like, was it 2009? Yes. It was, right? Yep. 2009 in the financial sponsors group at Morgan Stanley. She went on to work in private equity and then transitioned into this executive search firm. And then I know you worked with Cam and then moved to Go Buy Side, but please give our listeners just like an overview of your career path, what got you to where you are today. And then Cam, we'd love to hear the same for you. Yeah, sure. So thank you so much for having us on. It's great to be here. I think very highly of what you guys are trying to do here. And I've listened to all the episodes so far. So oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I drive a lot beat. for work. So I leave, I live like an hour and a half away from where I work. So I'm in the car a lot. Not yeah. to say I wouldn't have listened if I didn't have to drive. But. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> So yeah, Kristen's exactly right. I actually was a philosophy major in undergrad, so I didn't do any studying of business in undergrad. And so I kind of approached the bulge bracket investment banking training program very much for the training because I wanted to be paid to learn. So Mm -hmm. joined Morgan Stanley with Kristen. I know they've talked about how robust those training programs are and how large the classes are and how dynamic the opportunities are to be able to cross relate with all of the various analysts across the groups. And I love that part of it. Did that for the two years in sponsors group, both years. And I targeted sponsors because I knew I wanted to be in private equity. So it was very strategic on my behalf. And then I worked at a middle market private equity firm in Denver. That was a generalist firm. It was very different than the bulge bracket experience because it was a smaller firm, obviously. So worked really closely with management teams and very hands-on kind of operational experience as well as the financial experience. So kind of rounded Mm -hmm. that out. But through both of those experiences, really solidified my passion for people and how talent really drives organizations just as much as the financials do. And so I had always had the interest in recruiting. And then the founder of Cameron's in my previous firm was from Morgan Stanley. She was starting this firm. She reached out. I joined the firm for better part of a decade and then transitioned to join Go By Side with Cameron and brings us to today. I didn't realize you're a philosophy major. I love it. It's like yeah. <laughs> continuing the non-traditional yeah, majors. Yeah, completely. And I was always interested in business, but like philosophy was the most useless undergraduate major when it came to actual <laughs> practical applications. So it's not going to be a PhD student. Let's put it that way. I don't way. know, Kate. I like to think it's the reason why you think the way you think and you ask the questions, Maybe. which are bountiful. Yeah, I feel like it actually, for what you do, seems like perfect major. Yeah, more relevant now. And so, Cam, what about Uh you? 
Yeah, for sure. Given it was Canadian Thanksgiving yesterday, I feel like it's necessary to say I'm from Canada, proud Canadian. But yeah, originally from Canada and then similarly to Kate, didn't study business in undergrad, but did study it in my master's. And I actually ended up in executive search firm right after my master's, similar to Kate, you know, was reached out to, knew I wanted to be in finance in some way, like tangentially uh-huh. related to the markets, but candidly knew I loved interacting with people. That was always a skill set of mine and something I really wanted to, to pursue. So kind of randomly ended up working at a small boutique executive search firm and have been in the industry for over a decade and absolutely loved it. Enjoyed working with people who are extremely driven and excited to, to be in investment banking, but also in the landscape of private equity. You know, there's, there's so much that falls under buy side recruiting. It's everything from VC to growth equity. It could be public, it could be private. And that landscape is just continuing to, to evolve and get larger and larger. So my, my career has pretty much hit everything from VC to, to public investing as well and absolutely loved it and, and worked with Kate for almost the majority of my career, which has been amazing. And so I know Go Buy Side is trying to do something a little bit different from other executive search firms. So can you talk a little bit about the mission and what you guys are doing and how it differs from your quote unquote traditional headhunting firm? Yeah, I can start it and, and Kate, feel free to opine here and jump in. But the executive team now running Go Buy Side has a fantastic medley of experience. I'll use the royal we here to account for all of us. But, you know, we have experience running more and working in traditional search, but also working in a bulge bracket bank and also extensive experience being investors across strategies and industries, which I think really makes us uniquely equipped to develop a platform like this. So the mission is to find great candidates and obviously lead them and work with them to secure exceptional jobs and and leverage technology along the way. I think something really crucial is we really want to foster a financial community. There's so many closed doors and sometimes it's really tough to know the answers to questions that that maybe you should before an interview or uh, understand an investment philosophy before you jump in and commit to something that maybe, you know, wouldn't be right two years down the road. So we're just really excited to create a bit more transparency in the process and also autonomy for candidates, but also for firms. Yeah. And I'll chime in. I think one of the things that's most core to my interest and my passion about what we're building is the classic approach and even more so since Kristen, you and I were in banking, but there seems to be one unified way to get into the industry. And unless you have the certain criteria starting when you're 18 years old, then you're kind of already tapped out. And I just don't think that that's necessarily accurate or right, because I personally had no idea what investment banking was, what private equity was. I had no idea when I was 16. Um, To be Mm -hmm. honest, let alone a freshman in college, I didn't really know until like a senior in college what it was. And so I think that that's really important to try to like help candidates feel empowered to be able to pursue it at any juncture in their career, not feel like they missed the window if they don't happen to be exposed to the right people at the right time with the right information. And I think the fact that we're empowering them to pursue their own passions and come on the platform and give them access to all the opportunities we work with, let them see everything rather than the the classic kind of headhunter model is we're the gatekeepers, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think that's the way that the industry has evolved and with technology, obviously, and with the way that employers are hiring too. It's just kind of become less common. So Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about that. And I also think that coupling the expert recruiters who are really good at our jobs with that platform makes us more capable, more powerful, more efficient, and then bringing flexibility as far as the way that we approach search and structure the various contracts that we, and the kind of how we work with clients. So we can be flexible to make sure that we can kind of help all people, taking away some of the barriers to entry that would have been there for clients and or candidates just to make it more of an open marketplace and more of a community, like Cameron Mm -hmm. said, and hopefully with excellent, successful people, but still allowing it to be broader and have bigger touch. Can you dumb it down a little bit for our listeners who may be like me, who think of a headhunter or a recruiter as someone who's going to 
call you if you're a really great candidate and they saw your resume on LinkedIn and there's a spot that they think is a great fit for you and they are working for a hedge fund, a private equity firm, et cetera, et cetera. What is different about your business model that doesn't fall within those parameters? Yeah. I would say the unique difference is we're a community. So mm -hmm. To join the GoBuySide platform, you have to have the, the necessary background, investment banking, consulting, work on diligence, or be in the investing seat broadly. So that could also be corporate development roles at portfolio companies of our clients, et cetera. So it's mm -hmm. obviously a very broad range, but the differentiating mm -hmm. factor is we're handing over the autonomy and the ability to choose what opportunities candidates are interested in to the candidates and to clients. So by actually joining GoBuySide, you can see the opportunities that are relevant to you. You can have conversations with recruiters, but it's more of the powers in your hands versus having to be reactive to recruiters. So basically it sounds like with the normal model, pretend you're first year analyst about to uh, <laughs> start your training program, you would be having conversations with the recruiters and the recruiters would say, Hey, we have this XYZ opportunity. Are exactly. you interested? But you wouldn't necessarily get all the firms or the positions that you would want. You're only going to be given the ones that the recruiter says, hey, we're going to put you forth to this company. Yeah. And it's, it's on both sides. So it's, we're going to show you the opportunities that we want to show you. And we're going to express your interest and opportunities that we think that you're the best fit for. So it goes on both sides. And I think that there's a lot of value being added there from recruiters because they're really curating the audience. But then from the candidate side, I think that they feel like they're at the beck and call of somebody else. And I think in general, part of what is empowering is to go chase what you want and be able mm -hmm. to see what you have. And if you yeah. notice opportunities job postings that you don't have the qualifications for, go get those qualifications. So I think that those are the kind of things that really we allow candidates to do. And it's just much more efficient because to be honest, <laughs> recruiting firms are only so big and there are so many analysts out there. So mm -hmm. just to use the example of this past year, they're in training. None of them know what's going on, right? They would all love to have 30 minutes with the recruiter, but time doesn't work like that. So there's right, not really right. a way to give them that kind of deep dive, each one of them attention they deserve. And so this allows it to take away that inefficiency or that bottleneck and gives them the power to go after and explore and understand the market a little bit better. I yeah. love that. I mean, I think the best people in your business probably are trying to write their own obsolescence, if you will, because it's like, hey, listen, we want you to find a job that you're actually going to like and stay at. We don't right. want you coming back to us in two years trying to find another job, right? right? It's like, again, it's like in my real estate agent career. I don't want you to call me in two years wanting to sell your house because you hate it because we right. got you the wrong house. I yeah. make more money that way, but that's not what I'm interested in. I want better fits. And it sounds like totally. by opening it up and making it a more candidate empowered experience, then you probably end up with better fits and more longevity within the firms that they're placed at at the end of the day. And we have a lot of success with the less quintessential classic roles too. I mean, Cameron can speak to this specifically, but the kind of roles that we've been very successful at are not necessarily the ones right down the fairway that everybody would want to necessarily work at. Mm. But that's where the fit component can become so valuable. And our marketplace matching ability is just so mm. powerful comparatively, just because there, again, are so many candidates out there who are in this field and or wanting to continue to be in the field and transition to the buy side. If you get the opportunity in front of the right people who have interests that align, you just get a better fit long-term. Right. And I think that also a way that we're approaching it allows candidates who are the diamonds in the rough, who might not have the perfect background, mm -hmm. but happen to be like that one scrappy analyst who's really trying. Those people mm -hmm. really have a shot. And I think that those people are, to me, are the most impressive of all who kind of come up yeah. without having it spoon fed to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that further in their career, they continue to be successful. But for whatever reason, the way some of the other processes or firms might work, they might be disqualified out of the gate. 
Right. And actually, can you just sort of walk through what the process looks like? So generally speaking, you're always proactively reaching out to candidates because what's so fascinating about this market is that everyone's always kind of looking, right? Like you might not yeah. actually yeah, yeah, yeah. be looking, but everyone's kind of looking. And also if you aren't, maybe you should be because you never know what's going to come up and you never know mm-hmm. like if that perfect role is going to come up. Like I'm sure between you know the four of us here, if someone's probably not been looking, but then that perfect opportunity popped up in mm-hmm. your inbox. And Million like, percent. Well, exactly. I'll take the call. So I think that for a successful recruiter, that is the mindset you always have to have. Go by side specifically, that's what we foster is that you never know what the perfect opportunity is for which candidate. And so it's our job to make sure that the candidates at least get to see what the marketplace looks like today and what it looks like tomorrow. Because what it looks like tomorrow Mm -hmm. is not what it looks like today. So what a traditional model looks like is recruiters are perpetually reaching out to the same candidate base because our scope of candidate is so defined. It's investment bankers for the more junior roles. And then obviously it scales from there, but it's pretty much still within that wheelhouse. And so it's really just reaching out proactively, letting them know, hey, X firm, looking forward to chatting with you, getting on some sort of call, Zoom, whatever it is. And then just having that initial touch point. And that's where the the kind of relationship grows. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think the, the piece that Kate and I specifically love is you have that first call and then you're talking to them 10 years later and maybe they've yeah. had two different career changes and you've been part of that process. So we've talked a lot about these terms on cycle and off cycle recruiting. Let's back up a step. And can mm-hmm. we actually define what those terms are and what those processes are for our listeners who maybe haven't listened to previous episodes where we've touched on it or just simply aren't familiar with the terms? Yeah. On cycle and off cycle. It's funny, you know, 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have known what those are either. And now they're just such a, a normal word for me. So essentially, I don't even know where they came from technically, but on cycle is a time it's very cyclical. It happens usually around once a year. And, and basically what it is, is the landscape of private equity firms move the market and interview investment banking analysts, some management consultants, but mostly investment banking analysts who are either in their first year or maybe just started, which happened this year, but basically they're looking for jobs two years ahead of time. So just put tangible years on this. This year, the class that started, so they graduated from undergrad, May, 2023, whenever it was, they started their investment banking jobs. And then they're recruiting for associate positions at private equity firms, most of the time for summer 2025 starts. So on cycle basically means private equity firms are hiring their associate class two years out. And it's just a very quick process where they're filling their classes. It's a very quick interview process where all these candidates are making decisions very, very fast. And the difference- What kind of time frame are we talking about? Is it 48 hours? Is it one week? How quick is that process in your experience? It's very considerably over the last couple of years. Unfortunately, it's gotten more truncated. So it could be a couple of hours. It could be 48. It could be a week. But usually you wouldn't call anything post two weeks on cycle anymore. Then you're moving into off cycle, which basically off cycle just means more traditional recruiting. It's, hey, mm-hmm. first round, one week, second round, another week, maybe a case study the next week. So off cycle is everything else. And, that, and the, do all that- firms participate equally in off cycle and on cycle recruiting? No, it varies considerably again. And I think this also has changed a lot year to year based off how early on cycle goes. So it's kind of a firm decision. If you're comfortable interviewing candidates with X amount of experience, then okay, jump in. But also life happens. So if you have a trip or a vacation or something else and on cycle launches, you never know. So a lot of firms participate, but it changes year over year. And it's, it's been pretty crazy specifically with how early it's going. 
if you think about how the recruiting model evolved and just how recruiting in general evolved, I mean, Chris and you and I, when we were in banking, on-cycle recruiting didn't happen day one of training. I mean, it was completely yeah. different. So there was It was like six for, months in or how it, yeah, was, yeah. it was a while. It, it like totally you had depended a, actually, yeah. but you had a while. Like we definitely yeah. were on the desk for a while. And then the yeah. on-cycle was, I would say six months was the short end and it kind of fluctuated mm-hmm. back and forth. And so you had an opportunity to actually go meet with the headhunter. So a big part of your first year is honestly doing that is like going to make the rounds, walking to all the, the places in Midtown, New York mm-hmm. and going to meet all the recruiters and filling out the preference sheets and all of that type yeah. of stuff. But the quintessential difference is there was the time. That time mm-hmm. was allow- allowed and allotted That's so the recruiters point. could actually add their value and meet everybody in person and talk to the preferences and explain the landscape and blah, blah, blah. And the velocity and just kind of game theory has evolved such that competition for the talent, the, the pool has gotten shallower, I guess some would say. Mm -hmm. And so the competition for talent has gotten more intense. So people are seeking the same talent earlier on. And so the time for people to initially start to pursue buy side opportunities can be a lot shorter. I mean, this past year, they didn't even start training yet, right? It was like literally they hadn't (laughs) even been on their desks yet. And so the value add of making sure to meet everybody is not necessarily universally true. So Mm -hmm. go buy side takes the approach of let's take a broader landscape here and think about kind of the ways that we can get on everybody's radar and be you know, so have the time at our, our behalf and work with clients to place candidates on a continual basis. So mm-hmm. not necessarily saying like, we're going to prioritize meeting you when you're in training because we want to place you immediately. We're going to say, figure your stuff out, use this as a resource forever, join the platform, be on it. And when you feel like you're ready and you know what's what, then let us help you. Then let's but we're talk. not yeah, going to so give smart. you the, the false assumption that you need to decide that before you even know what investment banking is, because that's mm-hmm. just quintessential. That's impossible. I don't even know how yeah. you can do that. And I think that resources like this are extremely helpful. All the resources out there talking to peers, there's lots of ways to obviously smart kids are trying to get their way around it. But again, I just have a really hard time putting myself back into my 22 year old self and thinking about how I would be thinking about that process and how I could have conviction in an interview when I don't really even know what private equity is. And you haven't worked on a deal. And and if someone has been like successful in undergrad and then they got their Goldman Sachs investment banking job and M&A, and now it's like the next thing is, oh, I need to get this super prestigious private equity job. But they, I mean, they're sort of pursuing it for the wrong reasons, but just because that's what they're supposed to want instead of being like, okay, let me actually see what this whole deal thing is. Public markets are interesting. Maybe that would be a better fit for me. And like just not having the time to figure out what they like and what they're good at. Worth adding is that the phrase on cycle is definitely attached with a much more truncated process, like you said, and firms do leverage that. So because everybody's in the market at the same time, there's a feeding frenzy. The candidates have the unfortunate consequence of having to choose between which process they go through because they can't do Mm -hmm. them all. And some firms capitalize on that timing. And there've been stories and more so in the past than recently where candidates are kind of held hostage in offices until they're through the process and then give it an offer that quote unquote explodes if after they leave the office. So mm-hmm. let's say accept on the spot that no longer is on the table. So it can be that kind of one, one side of it. It is nice because the candidates get an opportunity to view multiple opportunities at one time, whereas off cycle is a little bit harder to predict when everything's going to be on the market, but mm-hmm. it's early and it's a crazy time frame competition. So the stress level is, if you're not prepared, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And so again, wow. based on that timeline, backing out when you need to be prepared If this is taking place before you've set foot in training for your first investment banking job, when can you prepare for this? During your senior week in college? During your spring break, your senior year? When you keep backing it out, the math is pretty insane of how early you need to be prepared for this process. It almost sounds like if someone is actually interested in going through this, they need to be thinking about it during their internship almost. Like, are you having people who are like reaching out to you as juniors? Like, I'm interested starting this next year. It makes sense. I want to get on the platform and like- 
Yeah. Totally. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and I think that to. you're right. The training and when you have to start getting your wheels turning is you usually have the internship, you get the full time. That's the way the markets evolve. Yep. So yeah. you have exposure that time, but it's definitely front of mind for them. But as far as learning the pure skills it takes to just do well in these processes, it's just a rep thing. I mean, you have to be able to yeah. build LBO models with a computer in a conference room with five other people, not your fancy keyboard macros, not your shortcuts, none of this stuff, not multiple screens. And you yeah. have a timeline. That's not necessarily a skill set that you would be practicing in your everyday life. And so so that's something you have to just make the point to practice. Yes, in your senior week, for example, or when you're not really hoping to think about 2025 yet. I mean, I just finished yeah. college, about to finish college, but <laughs> yeah. that's what to work backwards you would have to do. And I just want to like reiterate this because I don't think people understand how awkward it can be to get on someone else's computer keyboard. It's like stepping in a new car that you've never driven before and being asked to now go drive it. Building a model with a weird keyboard it's very jarring. Like if you've been practicing on one keyboard and I have to go do another one. And by the way, to your point, macros, they're just these keystrokes that can make changing the number format, the colors more efficient. And it gets very much in your fingers. You get that muscle memory. So it's almost like you have to unlearn all of that if you were doing that in your summer internship and go back to native Excel, get comfortable that way and practice on your laptop and not on a proper keyboard. So I just want to like reinforce that. And from scratch. Yeah, yeah. And from scratch. I also think it's important to circle back to our earlier conversation about how this process is also tough for people who don't know what investment banking is and yeah. don't know what private equity <laughs> right. is. Because if you're if you're pushing the recruiting timeline now to like maybe yeah. you have to start thinking about it second year of college, I wasn't thinking about what my job was going to be. I thought yeah. iBanking stood for internet banking my second year <laughs> in college. So I mean, yeah. yeah. So it also handicaps the potentially extremely smart and well-equipped kids who just yeah. don't know that that's an option yet. Correct. And so you spoke a little bit about some of the nitty gritty. You're going to be in this office. You've got to build this model. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about the different steps in the process, generally speaking? Can you give us the 10,000 foot view of what it looks like going through this on cycle and interview even, process? And even when they should be engaging with headhunters, the coffee chats, like how does that whole process work? So I think that each process is very different. I would say, again, let's use the example of 10 years ago when there was a higher volume of candidates who accepted roles on cycle and a higher number of firms who went through on cycle. The processes, generally speaking, varied. They always had some sort of technical component of it. I would say some started with that being the gatekeeping item that if you don't pass technicals, then you're out. Some of them being a day that filtered through where you had fit interviews, substantive interviews, conversations, and then had a case study and model or whatever it was and then meetings with more senior people. Coffee chats, to your point, Kristen, and just for everyone who's not familiar, is more of just a soft meet and greet before the process actually kicks off to give you an opportunity to network a little bit more formally with firms that you're interested in. A search firm set up coffee chats when they have the luxury of time, again, big caveat, because that has gone away, to be able to do a little bit of a pre-meet to ask about firms, ask about strategies. Obviously, during those informal networking conversations are not supposed to be interviews. So there's not the hard charging back and forth. It's more of a selling kind of opportunity for the firm to tell candidates about who they are. And firms also hold marketing events during that period of time for the exact same reason is they want to stand up and say, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is why you should work here. Here are all the great things we have going for us. And very much as when you're in college, they come to campus and give a little mm -hmm. presentation and then give you an opportunity to interview. Like it's more of that type of approach. And so again, when time was on their side, 
there was a lot of opportunity to really be able to carefully look at this population and think about who could be a good fit from both sides. Um, but again, as the timelines have gotten more truncated, as talent competition has gotten more intense, as the number of candidates who want to be in the buy side and be in these roles may have gotten smaller, all of that to be said, it's just radically changed. So processes as of late have been taken away even even the technical assessment because they're saying, hey, this kid's a senior in college, basically. So is it fair for us to ask him to build a model today when he hasn't even done the modeling job yet? So they're saying, no, we're going to bank on the fact that the bank where he, she is going is strong enough and will give them enough reps that we have confidence in that program and that training and all of that, that we're going to put all the past data we have of candidates coming through those programs and assume that will be the case here too and just assume the candidate will get there. And so right now I'm hiring on raw intelligence fit, those types of things, but not necessarily doing those robust technical assessment components. We always tell candidates to be prepared though for everything and anything. And to obviously the the kind of velocity of the process to be kind of continually thinking about, is this something I want? So you can't just be doing interview one. Okay, I'll leave. I'll figure it out later. You have to have it on your back of your mind the whole time because it could get accelerated really, really quickly. You've wow. spoken about the shrinking pool of both firms that are participating in OnCycle and also applicants that are participating in OnCycle. Yeah. That's something that was surprising to me. Can you speak a little bit that. about the population of firms that are going through OnCycle? And then also, why has the applicant pool shrunk? Because again, just anecdotally from what we see in terms of the DMs, the emails, the messages that we get... It sounds like it's something that's very top of mind for so many people out there. Whereas, again, 10 years ago, back in the dark ages when we were there, it was on fewer people's radar. So I'm really curious about how the market size has shrunk. This could be obviously a much different conversation to talk about how, in general, the economy has evolved and how opportunities have evolved and how the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world have shifted mm. candidates' perspective as far as wanting to be entrepreneurial ah. and follow kind of their passion project. And so uh-huh. if you were to take a cross-section of, I went to Stanford, so 10 Stanford students. I was talking to a colleague about this yesterday. She took 10 of her son's friends on a spring break trip, but I was like, my goodness, good for you. And we uh-huh. were talking about where all their heads were as far as their career goals. And one is going into consulting, one's going into banking, of course, but there's a wide smattering of other ones. One wants to be a graphic designer, mm. two of them want to start their own business. There's um, a lot of technology focused engineering type of roles. And obviously Stanford is a unique example because it's Silicon Valley. Sure. And so it's very much sure. entrepreneurial, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting data point because when I was coming through yeah. Stanford, it was majority was either management consulting or banking. Really? There were f- very few exceptions to that. I would say mm-hmm. for like the hard charging chase, the challenging career. And so now yeah. the candidates are just seeing a lot more potential things to do. So it's not just banking or management consultant or bus. There's a lot of talented candidates doing technology jobs, trying to start their own businesses, doing all of those things. There's not all going to one place. That totally Funny makes data sense. Point. In my yeah, I was mind, say, I was thinking yeah. that you meant the interest from the kind of candidate pool that mm. we're thinking of, that investment banking analyst, that that yeah. interest had shrunk. You no, know, yeah, it's more of like you think about yeah. the best of the brightest from the top places mm-hmm. in the country and who are the most motivated, ambitious. There are lots of things they can do to be successful and lots yep, of yeah. directions they can choose. Well, and so it's just, they're kind of everywhere, right? Sure. Yeah. No, it's so true. I actually, I've told Jen the story. So Jen and I graduated in 2006 from undergrads. That was the same year that Mark Zuckerberg, I think, would yeah. have been had he stayed at, at Harvard. And I had people who were in my college who graduated in you know, six, went to go to Facebook. And I remember thinking like, that's a fake company. Like, totally. what are they doing? Yes. Like, who's laughing now? But I mean, <laughs> yeah, the perception is obviously shifted dramatically. 
Um, Dramatically. And it's cool because, I mean, that's like America 101, right? The American dream, start Mm -hmm. your own business, make it work, make it happen. But it does create a shallower pool, not by numbers, because the analyst classes haven't necessarily shrunk. Got it. But it's just just that the people who are filling those, exactly. And so then you take that, roll that forward, and you also look Mm -hmm. at, now we have multiple years of data on our side from a varying number of perspectives, but let's go to the firm's perspective now. They have been in this market doing this on-cycle thing for 20 years, a long time since we were in banking, Kristen. So they yeah. kind of have seen where the success is. And I think that as the process gets earlier and earlier, they've also seen data points where candidates renege because they frankly don't know enough mm. to be able to say. They might in their best intentions, heart of heart, no intention of reneging, accept a job. But then as to your point, Kristen, they're going through their day to day, they get exposed to something else. And they're like, oh, this mm-hmm. is actually what I want to do. Forget that other yeah. thing. It's their life. I mean, they obviously don't want to be a slave to an organization that they had committed to with limited information. And right. so- So they would renege on an offer. And so that puts a firm in a really tough spot because they obviously want people to be good fits and to be successful. So they're not going to be angry about it, blacklist them or whatever, but it still creates a spot they need to fill. That's more of why the firms have just been realistic about the fact of like, hey, listen, we're probably not going to be able to fill our entire class in this short truncated period of time because it's so far in advance. So Mm -hmm. a fewer firms have just dived in there. And then again, just because the game theory component, the firms that are successful in on cycle are yeah. the very highly touted firms. The mega funds, I would say, are the ones that are quintessentially the ones driving the market. There are some mm-hmm. upper middle market firms, but it's generally the ones that everybody would think about when they say the knocking down the door, you'd be lucky to work here type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Those are the places that are successful during on cycle. And then the number of firms that are participating in that even from that criteria has shifted again because the inefficiencies and because the timeline is just from a business perspective, anybody and everybody would say does not make sense. Cool. That's really, really insightful. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'd add there is in addition to Kate's point about risk tolerance for people graduating from undergrad, which I think is very different than when we all graduated. Uh um, I, I think something else that's really important bringing it back to our industry specifically is that firms are also hiring directly out of undergrad now. So that didn't exist to the same capacity a couple of years ago, let alone 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So firms have said, hey, we know what we want to attract top talent. On cycle is pretty crazy. We'll do some off cycle recruiting, but also let's go after a couple of hires directly from undergrad and trust that we have the institutional knowledge to set them up for success and hire them directly here. So analyst classes Mm -hmm. are something that have grown substantially year over year, and we would probably assume we'll continue to do so. But that's also a higher risk for the firm. Smaller firms sometimes can't take on that risk. Whereas to Kate's point, like mega funds, they can take on a couple of analysts that if they're strong and they work out, awesome. If they don't, great. Well, again, back to the training aspect too. I I know roughly how much some of these bold bracket banks would pay to Mm -hmm. run their training programs. And it was not a small number for a smaller private equity firm. They might not be able to provide that same level of training. They outsource it all to a bank and then pick them off two years later. (laughs) Exactly. No, and and it is so expensive. And just from pure mechanics, I mean, Kristen, in every investment, we were in training for legitimately like the Mm -hmm. summer. You know, it wasn't a quick day, two days, the entire summer. And I remember some stat back then, 2009, about how much we were worth, quote unquote, by the time Mm -hmm. you hit the desk, because how much the firm had invested in you. And the number is crazy. They're banking that you're going to be able to prove that out. And for the most case, you do. But in the smaller firms, they're just not the financial capital to do so. But then also just not the numbers. If you have a, only two or three people to train, you're not going to put them through training all summer. It's just not going to happen because it right. just doesn't make sense. So the, that's yeah. the, the difference. And you know, we were talking about this earlier, Kate, just that one of the things that you get from going through, say, like a bulge bracket bank, you are getting the network 
of all these people who are going to all these different parts of the firm. I had friends in capital markets and equity capital markets, debt capital markets, investment banking, sales and trading, research, like all over. And those relationships, they come in handy as your career progresses. It's almost like you're getting a business school class, but you are paid for that experience. And so if you're going directly into an analyst program at a private equity shop, that's great. But you are potentially, if it's a smaller firm, going to be miss out on a lot of connections and networking that you could get if you were otherwise doing a formal to your program. Absolutely that. And then also just the pure fact of being on the sell side to see the way markets are made. I mean, Jen, as you've been a, a broker, you're obviously selling houses now. So if you go turn around and you buy a house, and I know you've mentioned you've, you've moved a number of times because why wouldn't you? You're an expert in the way these markets trade. You understand where the opportunities to make money are. And so you take advantage of those opportunities. And so mm-hmm. just definitionally, the sell side moves a lot faster than the buy side. The sell side gives you a chance of how markets are made and where the levers are to pull. And so when you go to the buy side, that breadth of experience and that velocity of deal reps is very mm-hmm. powerful because it gives yeah. you a sense of what worked, what didn't work, all that kind of stuff. A brokerage role is a shorter time frame than an investor where you actually have to own and foster this thing. And so <laughs> for you're seven, not- 10 years. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I used to always hear this joke and it was like, if you are an investment banker, well, people used to say it's like a one night stand, but we'll call it dating. <laughs> Whereas like if you're at a private equity firm, you are getting married. Granted yeah. with the intent to divorce down the line, but you are getting married and you need to like work through all the problems yeah. versus you do the deal, you close the deal, you move on to the next one. Exactly. So uh, and actually one quick question. Is it still the case that you're probably not going to be able to get a job in private equity out of an MBA if you didn't pr- previously have that experience? So I would say yes. But just basically firms are looking for top talent and there's always Mm. a firm that is open to considering candidates with a bit of differentiated background. We actually recently worked with a candidate who graduated from an MBA program. Great background, wasn't in private equity before because candidly didn't know it was an option coming out of Mm -hmm. undergrad and was an associate at a bulge bracket bank and just joined as an associate at a private equity firm. The caveat to that is that person, they have a way higher salary. uh, And so they're taking a step back. So it's a lot Mm -hmm. harder to make that move because Mm -hmm. you as a human have to be like, okay, I know in the long run, I want to be in investing. So I'm going to take a considerable step back cash wise today. And that's done because banks have, they're smart. They've over the last couple of years been like, hey, there's a ton of attrition to private equity firms. How can we stop that? Let's pay people more. That's Mm -hmm. one lever they've pulled. So compensation just broadly has gone up considerably. One more question I have. You had mentioned with consulting, you typically are going to need to be McKinsey, Bain, BCG. Can you talk a little bit about why? And you had also mentioned that if you're going into one of those three, there are specific roles and projects you can try to get staffed on that will Mm -hmm. improve your chances of actually getting a private equity offer and going through that process successfully. Yeah, sure. So management consultants, there's a few differences I would make. The first distinction I would say is timeline is different for those candidates. They usually have, even back when OnCycle was in full full force, they would wait out a year and they would recruit, assuming they're going to be in their seats for three years, which is interesting. And I think, I don't know if it's more of a, a personality comment on their thoughtfulness, but it was something that had always been the case. Consulting jobs are extremely valuable, but the way that the market has been more limited is yes, the three firms, Bain, McKinsey, BCG, are the three that I would say are the most highly touted. And the reason I would say those are most relevant is because those have really well-known private equity diligence groups. So -hmm. if you think about what relevant work a management consulting firm is doing for private equity investing, it's doing these market assessments, these assessments that they get hired by private equity firms to do as part of their diligence process. So almost as like a CYA, but as a stamp of approval for not only the internal investment committee, but also for their investors on like a capital Mm -hmm. call. They want to have this fancy, pretty report by a very respected, well-known management consulting firm that says, 
thumbs up. Things look good. This is a good market. There's opportunity to grow here. And the mm-hmm. people at the Bain BCG McKinsey who are doing those projects are in the PE diligence groups. So they're not the ones going to work for Visa trying to figure out how to cut costs, right? They're the ones that are getting hired to help a private equity firm assess a very specific industry. And they're doing expert calls with people in that industry. They're looking at various trends in that industry. They're looking at maybe even political acts or things that are up on Capitol Hill that might impact that industry. All of mm-hmm. these other elements they're pulling upon, but all of it triangulating in their head of around the investor skill set. So what, what do I need to know to figure out if this is going to be a good investment? And let me think like that. And so mm-hmm. they're getting the reps in that deal, not only to how in private equity firms are viewing it, but they're encouraged to be thinking about market making the entire time as well. And so mm-hmm. those are the groups that we see the most success for. Candidates who have an interest in private equity will raise their hand and say, I want to be in the private equity diligence groups. And the candidates who do well in making the transition to private equity and investing are the ones who have had that experience. Building a model, probably something they're going to ask you to do because they want to know that you know how it works. And a lot of the firms that we see, they hire both consultants and investment bankers. I think it's a good combination of skill sets. But again, investment banking, your brokerage firms are banks for companies of all sizes all around everywhere. But in the private equity diligence landscape, there are only a few that are really considered to be the best of the best. And so that's why it's more limited to those few. So talk a little bit about the candidates that you're seeing come across. I think one of the things that you guys have already spoken about and one of the things that that we think is so empowering about Go Buy Side is the way that you have the ability to reach so many more candidates from more diverse backgrounds. Are there any main characteristics that you see most of your top candidates having in common mm-hmm. besides just like, you went to a XYZ school, you had yeah. really good grades. Like if you don't have good grades these days, sorry, it's probably not going to go so well. It's interesting because one of the ways I've heard it talked about the most is like grades are, it's a testament to your excellence and your commitment to excellence. It's not necessarily just the fact that you're willing to, when you approach something, you're going to do it well. And that's obviously relatable and helpful across your career. But I would say that if you're interested in being in a role on the buy side, and actually from FP&A roles all the way to the private equity investing roles. Sorry, what's FP&A? So financial planning and analysis, it's just like Thank kind you. of a more of course, <laughs> more of an <laughs> interner role that's more of the mechanics of the way a company runs than it is necessarily an investor seat, but still very important mm-hmm. because obviously it is the machine that drives the decisions that the company is making. But the skill set of being in that realm is what I would say we look for. So it's not necessarily only certain colleges, only certain GPAs. It's more of demonstrated interest in the field that we're placing candidates into through prior experience. So internships, full-time time jobs, things that do show and speak to the fact that they're interested in making a transition into being an investor long-term or they're currently investors, obviously, and staying in the field. That's the criteria from an experience standpoint. As far as personal characteristics and who and who not, we kind of see interact with us. I would say that the people who are most engaged in the platform are obviously the ones that are most intellectually curious and trying to get more information. And the candidate pool who is just on the platform, but not as active. I think those candidates are using it for the purposes of just understanding market trends and understanding various opportunities out there to when they are thinking about maybe what qualifications to develop and what characteristics to develop, they're looking at it from where they want to end up backwards. And then the only other thing I'd add to your guys' point about what we look for, this is something our team constantly talks about. And I know Kate and I constantly talk about 
learning and, and figuring out how to define grit. I think something yeah. we've seen in Ooh. candidates, like the most successful candidates, the ones our clients are the most excited about, the ones who do really well in interview processes. It's just this tough to ascertain definition and understanding of grit. Those who are just willing to go the extra mile, the ones who actually prepare, they look at all the portfolio companies, they mm. look at the background of the person who's interviewing them. Like they just do everything and then some. And that's one yeah. of the toughest things mm-hmm. to, to kind of like see in a candidate. But when you do, you're like, all right, th- this person's <laughs> really excited and, and they're going to do well. Well, and what we talk about too is how can you figure out a way to assess that and to make a criteria? How do you measure it? And then mm-hmm. if you're going to measure it, how do you index on that scale? Versus the, did you go to the Harvards, the Princetons, you get the 4.0, the 2,400, whatever number it is now. Were you (laughs) the getting everything 100% or did you just have the grit to figure it out? And when you came up across an obstacle, you'd figure it out. You'd go around it. You wouldn't say, oh, well, that was fun. My time here is Mm -hmm. done, right? But yeah, Cameron and I are so passionate about trying to figure out that metric because that part, obviously, there's no barriers to entry. That's just Mm -hmm. generally your raw willingness to make it happen. And that doesn't necessarily take a certain IQ or a certain socioeconomic standing. It really doesn't. It's just, are you willing to fall down a thousand times and keep getting up until you get to where you want to end up? And that's obviously like what America is. That's like Mm -hmm. what it's built on. And so trying to, yeah, (laughs) trying to let people, Katie, let me know when your campaign is. (laughs) (laughs) I vote for you. Um, I don't have very stiff competition for the campaign. (laughs) (laughs) We think about this all the time though, of that balance within people. It was, oh, you're not actually smart. You just work really hard and study. Or like, oh, you didn't work so hard, but you just skated by on natural intelligence. Who are we to say who's smart? Because you got mm-hmm. a certain exactly. score on a certain test. That's mm-hmm. one of my biggest pet peeves when people are like, oh, well, they're not smart. And I'm like, why are you the smart police? Like, are you the smartest <laughs> person in the world? I don't really understand why that's fair. And so instead, there's certain things that are successful for certain opportunities, right? When you guys are talking about differences of do you like markets or do you like more yeah. detailed analysis, sales and trading versus investment banking? I mean, there's certain criteria that are who you are. And if you lean yeah. into those things, you will be more successful. So that's don't exactly push the boulder right. up the hill where you don't have any interest in it because raw intelligence, especially the longer you're in a career plays. It absolutely plays. And also you don't want your job to feel like work. So if you're naturally good at what you do, you're going to like it more. It's just the way it goes. I saw someone, I think it was a Stanford professor and he was like, my number one piece of advice to people is find the thing that you love that to you doesn't feel like work because you will do that for fun in your spare time and it won't feel like work. So you will work harder than anyone because it's fun for you. You know, a thousand percent. Not and that's why actually, that's why we do this. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and me too. I genuinely yeah. love what I do. Yeah. And I think that there was a component, a time when I was really committed to the fact of no investment banking, private equity. I have to be this hard charging data driven and uh, analyst. And I was like, do I really like sitting behind a computer being in Excel all day? Like not really my favorite mm-hmm. thing. And so being in private equity and getting out in the market and talking to management teams and meeting the bankers and doing all that social component. I was like, no, this is really where the deals are made. It's the relationships. Yeah. It's the people. It's not in that freaking Excel model. Like that's a model, which like chances that's right five years from now, very, very slim. So Mm -hmm. you got to do what you got to do and try to guess to make a good decision. But when it comes down to it, the people are what make things move forward. So that's what I'm passionate about. And that's why I went that direction. And I think any candidate in this field should absolutely do that. I think if you're doing it because someone else told you to, or because you just want to get rich or whatever, you will not be successful. Maybe you will today, but you won't long-term. Yeah. Okay. One of the biggest questions that I think there historically was so little transparency around, and now there is much more transparency through your platform, through conversations that are happening organically in the world of social media, things like that, is compensation structures in the world of private equity and hedge funds. 
And um, in New York, I think it's a law that you have to put the comp, although people get around it by saying like zero to $2 million. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A range. A range. A range. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you communicate compensation expectations with candidates going through the process and any insight you can offer in terms of how carry is shared and how that compensation structure tends to change over the life cycle of someone's employment at one of these firms? As far as comp ranges go, this is going to be kind of a frustrating answer, but it varies (laughs) so much based off of the two main factors are fund size and location. And so I think that's where the recruiter should and can be the most helpful because they can say, hey, you have X, Y, and Z experience. This firm is at this fund size and in this location, market is X. So it's tough to give ranges for like, hey, every single private equity associate is going to be in between X and Y because candidly, the range is like, 200 to 450 because Mm. a mega fund can pay significantly more than this awesome first time fund in insert second tier city. That's still an awesome opportunity. So as far as comp ranges, the floor is usually for an associate around 200. The ceiling is like 450 to 500. And then it just scales from there. And I, mm-hmm. I would say the window gets a little bit smaller as you get more senior because carry becomes a bigger component. Uh, yeah. And obviously a significant wealth generator versus mm-hmm. just, hey, paying the bills. So structurally, there's definitely a base and a bonus component to all the buy side roles. Mm-hmm. And just like old the, fashioned banking, just like old fashioned mm-hmm. banking. And the bonus is a substantial part of your salary. As far as your compensation expectations going into a role, they do provide a range. Generally, the base salary is obviously contractual, what you do sign up on. So we have that color and can talk to the candidate about that. Do they get a signing bonus too? It depends, actually. Sometimes relocation bonuses, sometimes signing bonuses, but not necessarily. And then the bonus structure in the offer letter, at least, is always a range or always based on performance. So it's up to us and up to the firm to give them a guesstimate, kind of, but Mm -hmm. it's not contractually obligated at all. So Mm -hmm. when we're talking about all-in first-year cash compensation, base and bonus, but again, we only definitively know the base and the bonus Mm -hmm. is a trend of if you perform well, that's going to be 60 to 120% of your base, for example. The carry component is only allotted to the more senior roles where you're going to be at the firm long term. Um, Mm -hmm. There are very few exceptions where associates get what they call like phantom carry. So they're not really getting equity grants, but instead they're getting like, yeah. So compensation structures, if we think about the quintessential buy side roles for the candidates who are coming out of two years of investment banking, they're looking at first year associate roles on the buy side that would be paying them a base and a bonus structure similar to their banking salary. So Mm -hmm. the base is defined, the bonus is variable, the bonus can be above 100% of their base. And so I would say that the overall expectation is candidates hope to be on an upward trend. So it's very helpful. And they often bring up the point of, well, last year base and bonus was this. And obviously I'm going to be more experienced next year. So I'm looking for more than that. Mm -hmm. That's a common way that they back into it or rationalize it. And we think about the dollar value that a private equity firm can offer to an associate, to anybody on their team. It's based on the fund size. The two and 20 rule is pretty simple math. It makes sense. So you have a certain amount of money to keep the lights on. You can pay a certain amount of money in salaries. So the larger funds can pay more. They have more people, Mm -hmm. but they can also pay more. And so when you think about kind of compensation bands, we track those based on fund size. If you're going to a smaller fund, you might make less but then you're working on smaller deals. So it's not because your experience is necessarily worse or anything. It's just by the way the numbers work. And so to touch on your second point too, carry is only allocated to the candidates who are more senior at a firm. So vice presidents are usually the place where you'd start to see it. And as far as title progression at private equity firms, it goes associate, senior associate, vice president. Vice president is that 
quintessential post-MBA role, which sometimes mm-hmm. does or does not actually require the MBA. But it's mm-hmm. more of you're in it for the long haul. You're basically putting skin in the game. We're going to have skin in the game together. So your upside is our upside type of thing. And carry structures are extremely complex, obviously. And we can have a whole nother podcast on trying to explain those. Oh, we will. But, <laughs> uh, but really kind of what you need to know is how wealth is generated in the private equity is through obviously carry and carried interest mm-hmm. and the way that that's treated in the tax code is different too. Yes. And so- there are like lots of benefits around that. But for the kind of junior candidates coming out of investment banking, going into private equity, carries not generally, you could make the assumption, a thing that they're discussing. It's more cash base and bonus. Um, and they can also ask about trends and we encourage them to do this if they're unhappy with the offer today of where does it trend over my mm-hmm. career? You know, do I get an opportunity to get carried down the road? All those types of things, yeah, yeah, yeah. questions. Yeah, How so many years you, is typically required before you start participating in some of that upside with carry? How many years between associate and vice president typically? Totally, totally depends. I would say mm. associate roles are, are two years. Senior associate roles, one to two years. Then you'd kind of be kicked out and gone to get your business, your degree, right? I graduated after six years of quote unquote experience. And then you could theoretically be eligible for a VP role because the MBA has gotten less required than mm-hmm. the timeline of actual time on the job is more. And just because the way the pyramid works, it's not necessarily just number of years because it, there has to be space above you in the structure to have additional room for VPs. So oftentimes, even though a candidate might be ready experience-wise for that bump, the firm doesn't have the opportunity for them to make that bump. And so you see candidates looking around a lot for, I want that post-MBA role because there's not the structure at my firm to allow me to take that step for another five years because they're not retiring. They like their jobs or VPs. I can't like, I'm not better at my their job than they are. We're not going to replace them, right? So mm-hmm. it's just a, a dynamic around the team size and the, the fund structure and fund life and all that stuff. And the last point I'll make is that the opportunity to potentially get a promotion structure or for them to rethink about the structuring is on new fundraises because when a new fund is raised, it could be bigger. So they have mm-hmm. more money to hire more people. They allocate carry when funds are raised. So you're looking at potentially the people in the carry pool at that point in time. So you might have a VP who starts on year five, year six of fund two to use crude examples. And then they're like, we're in the market raising fund three though. So you'll get carry in fund three. And here's what that looks like. That's common. Because fund three will be the fund that that VP is most likely investing the majority out of. And then the only other thing I I would add to the carry conversation, which is interesting, and and Kate and I have chatted about this a lot, but smaller funds that can't pay people as much because of the structure that Kate just went through. Another lever that they've pulled is, hey, okay, cash wise, we have to be at X and Y and we just can't be more than that threshold. What if we gave associates a bit of carry? So there is a bit of flexibility in the market for smaller funds. Like we've seen it a lot for first-time funds, just because there's obviously a bit more risk in joining that type of platform. Sure. If they want to attract top talent, they're like, hey, you know, we can give you X and Y from a cash place. We'll also give you skin in the game because we want you to be here long term. So compensation is just always such a, a bit of a black box because mm-hmm. there's always something else you can add to sweeten the deal because mm-hmm. everyone wants the best people on their team. That's and there's also one third element mm-hmm. we should probably mention just because it's it's worth is that co-invest also comes to play. So co-invest being you actually put skin in the game and double down when deals are made and firms actually will lend you the money interest free to mm-hmm. be able to let you have the opportunity to invest that money you wouldn't necessarily have sitting in the bank account because a junior person in the carry pool doesn't have millions of dollars in the bank account from previous carry payouts. And so mm-hmm. they have the opportunity to co-invest through money that the firm facilitates borrowing, which is a huge also benefit and upside too. And the thing that's different about those two, co-invest, if you leave the firm, you still have the opportunity to be 
a benefit from that. Whereas oh. Carrie has a vesting schedule that if you're not at the firm, you no longer have it. So Got it. a big component of senior conversations are you're walking away from money on the table because you're walking away from Carrie that's been allocated and vested into one fund and you have to leave that there. And then you're mm-hmm. going to go start over again in a new Carrie pool where you have a new vesting schedule and all of those things. Um, Actually, quick question. Is co-invest, can you get that at an associate level or is that going to start at the VP There are level? some scenarios where you can't get co-invested at associate level. Yes. Wow. And yeah. okay, for our listeners... If you remember, we've talked in past episodes about there's different types of strategies. There's growth equity and then classic leverage buyout. But I always used to think this was funny because if a firm is doing like a classic leverage buyout strategy, I was looking at the Birkenstock LBO, like it was levered up like <laughs> 6.6 times when it was first done. So then if you are an associate who is then putting in cash, like you were to put in $100,000, you might only need to put in again 20%. So it's like you're levered multiple times. <laughs> so again, you can get like great returns from that. Yes. It's like leverage upon leverage. One question to bring us back to some of the earlier things that we were talking about, I would love to get into a little more detail on is, can you walk us through the actual requirements for the interview process? We touched on it a little bit, that there's going to be a technical component, that there's going to be a fit interview. We've heard a lot about things called paper LBOs. We've talked about going into a room and building an LBO on someone's computer. Can we just get a little bit more detail into that process of what to generally expect during either on-cycle or off-cycle recruiting as part of the process. What skills do you need to have in your toolkit? The thing that I would say is the most important is do the research about the firm that you're going to work at. So that Ooh, means levering, that. leveraging the recruiters to ask questions. What is the process going to look like? You know, any sense of questions they're going to ask? Who will I be meeting with? Look at the bios for the people you're going to be meeting with. Look to see where they went to school. Really do like understand the firm because if you walk in there being like, what are you doing again? Like that's not a good look, right? <laughs> you're like a total yeah. idiot. And so that's just like, hopefully does not need to be said. But Oh no, it all needs to be said. It all needs, it all to, be needs to be said. You have no um, idea how many times I'm in interviewing a kid for Princeton and they're like, I really like Harvard. I'm like, great. Good for you. Go there. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually one of the things that I think is the most frustrating. And we hear stories for our clients where like they didn't even know what we did. And we're like, oh my goodness, these and that's Mm -hmm. that kind of makes us look bad because we've told them and told them again and told them a third time. And then they for some reason don't think it's important enough because they're so valuable. And so they don't remember it and and give off that impression when they go to the firm. So obviously the quintessential elevator pitch of who are you walking through your resume always required. It's practicing mm-hmm. that, having that locked down and not getting into a crazy long monologue about where you grew up and your mm-hmm. life passions. Like no one really cares, but why mm-hmm. and what, what's relevant to the job is a hard skill. It really is hard. And actually Cam and I talk about this a lot is like, how do you do the quick intro about yourself? And as we get older, it's really mm-hmm. hard to try to put it down into a couple Does couple it minutes. still like, need to be a one page resume? We always yes. wonder this. Like it does, yes. right? Yes. And it's so funny because I, to this day, see people all the time who are like 18 years years old with a three-page resume. I know. And I was like, okay, when I was 30, I still needed to have mm-hmm. a one-page resume. Yeah. I think after you've made MD, you can maybe start going down to a second page. Well, and you actually, that's a good point. If you look at a resume, it's probably should not have all these crazy pretty graphics and all that stuff, which is totally the evolution of resumes in other fields. But in this, no, like basic times. No Elwood's Romans, scented 12, pink paper. No, I mean, no, and that's not classic. It might work for some, but um, times New Roman, 12 font, normal margins, all the things. And if you're just looking at the resume from first glance, the top half should be allocated to your most recent relevant experience. So hopefully 
with your current job. Um, no longer like so when I was a young child, I exactly. was in the Girl Scouts, like or like with that. I had an internship where I did this and having 15 bullet points, no one cares. Mm-hmm. And then when you're thinking about listing all your things under undergrad and stuff, you also don't want that to be like half the page. And if they're, I know everybody's super involved. So list them in kind of line format, comma delineated rather than taking all the space to do that. So that's just like basic kind of mechanics of how a resume should look. And then you need to be able to walk through that as the, the entry item of walk through your resume. And then obviously it's a kind of a back and forth discussion exchange, varying levels of technical complexity. Sometimes they'll ask you to walk through, tell me how depreciation flows through the three statements. Not an easy question, but you better know it. Or how do you get to unlevered free cash flow? Questions like that, that anybody could study in the finance 101 interview questions. Maybe what's the Dow at right now? That could be a question too. Market questions. What do you think about the trend in the private credit market and leverage rates? How's that going to impact our business? Everything that's going to get around your understanding, knowledge, passion, interest, not only from a studied, I did my homework, but from like, actually, this makes me tick component. They're going to ask questions around that. And I think that back in the day, there was more of like the asshole factor where interviewers really love to trip candidates up and do these weird things to see what they would do. We've heard less stories of that, fortunately. Um, That's good. Where, yeah. Yeah. So it's not anything like totally crazy, but I think that putting your best foot forward. And the thing I always tell somebody too, is that if you don't know the answer, say you don't know. If you mm-hmm. don't happen to know where the Dow is trading, don't guess. That's mm-hmm. a, a number that is true or it's not true. If you guess, you're like <laughs> an idiot, you know, like there are certain things where you should say, you know, I really actually don't know, but I'm interested to find out what do you think or mm-hmm. something like that. And so I always think it's much more of a conversational, be prepared about what your job is, be able to talk about your experience and why you're a good fit, and then be able to think through what things do you need to know about this job in order to really figure out if you'll be a good fit long-term. So it's a question and an answer component. You're very much wanting to understand how that interviewer is viewing mm-hmm. their hiring and their team and the evolution of their firm because you're looking to join that firm. That's mm-hmm. your opportunity to get information about it. And maybe day one, interview one, you don't spend 15 minutes asking them questions, but you should absolutely in the back of your mind be thinking about that. If you're genuinely, honestly considering an opportunity at any point, you would have a question about it. And so if someone right. says, do you have any questions for me? And you say, no, I'm good. Then that <laughs> kind of indicates, well, so you actually have no interest in this because how do you have no questions? You actually know nothing about right. this place. So like that blows yeah. my mind. Think ahead of time what are some questions you could ask? And then mm-hmm. be jotting down notes as they're talking and stuff, because that's really where you can shine and where that back and forth exchange mimics what a day-to-day would be like in the job. And so if yeah. that part of it goes well, that's going to be a lot, lot better than knocking that paper LBO out of the park. If you do well on the paper mm-hmm. LBO and can do well in the back and forth conversation, you're going to get the job versus the person who b- absolutely crushes the paper LBO and can barely tell you his name. Right. Right, And so the combination of those factors is extremely important and it genuinely is all on the candidates back. So if they don't have good deal experience and like, well, I don't have any good deal experience. What can I talk about? It's like, we'll talk about the things you did do that you had Mm -hmm. the opportunity to do, even though the IPO markets shut down right now, even though the markets are not as busy as they have been in the past, what can you speak to about your experience? You got all the way to the end on a process didn't close. Who cares? Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. Tell us what you did and what you learned during that process, because investment banks are having these analysts do things probably for less payout at the end of the day, but they're not sitting there watching Netflix all day. You're doing something. So talk about what you're doing. And then obviously be thinking ahead to the fact of what skills you need to be 
learning when you're on the desk and go after those skills. If you're not given a model assignment, build a model from scratch for this company, go build it on your own and mm -hmm. ask your team. Take it upon yourself to give yourself the reps that you need to get the job. Cam, don't, don't sit there and be like, look at how many people have how many closed deals. Literally irrelevant. Right. It's just about what kind of experience did you have, not did it close. But I always tell candidates, don't take yourself out of the game because you don't have any closed deal experience, live deal experience. That's not on your shoulders. So it's not necessarily fair to, to take yourself out for that reason. Go yeah. get the experience that you need and you want and get the skills that you need and you want to get the job that you want. That's yeah, phenomenal that advice. Kate and I could probably do an entire podcast about recommendations in terms of like what people should do and should not do during <laughs> interviews. But I think the other thing, Jen, just to your original question, like the most traditional interview structure, just for mm -hmm. listeners to know what to expect and prep for, it's a 45 minute, usually it's a Zoom with like a VP or a principal level. And it's, uh -huh. hey, walk me through your resume. Anything on your resume is fair game. If there's a number there, I'm going to ask you about it. If there's a deal there, hey, I might've looked at that deal. Be ready to walk me through it. Mm -hmm. Then you could have some sort of case study and model that can range from you're sitting down and doing it an hour or two hours to, hey, you have a week, look at this 10K, look at all this information. Would you invest? Would you not? Build me a PowerPoint, build me a deck, et cetera. And then usually it's a super day where you go to the office, you meet with partners, you meet more senior members of the team, but then you also meet with associates or whatever level you're looking for to get that peer to peer touch point. And then usually it's references and an offer. That's the most traditional. And again, Kate and I could probably do an entire podcast about references, but like the quick on references is usually you're asked for someone at a similar level to you, more senior, and then someone who's been like your staffer or you've been a direct report to. We understand there's always issues around like, hey, my job doesn't know I'm looking. There's always an option. Someone's left who you can talk to, but that's the most traditional recruiting process for an investment banking analyst going into an associate role. Got and it. we don't necessarily know from the outset. They can't define that. We couldn't sit down for every process we're working on to define that. We work really hard on trying to help clients figure that out ahead of time because we see success when clients are on the same page with processes and we have the ability to chart out all those timeframes for a candidate ahead of time. But there are a lot of firms where that's not the case. And so one thing I always say too is that if you don't hear from a recruiter, don't assume it's bad news. Sometimes, honestly, mm. they're they're doing their day jobs. This is not their number one thing to focus on. <laughs> like their on. number one thing is not your process. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And so it's really just staying in touch and staying in the communication with the recruiter because we're giving you full information. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily always have full information. And to be honest, no one on the investing team does either. They're kind of like, well, we really like this person. Let's keep moving them forward in yeah. some ambiguous yeah. way until we decide they're at the offer threshold. And, you know, so it's mm -hmm. a little bit harder to really know of what it boom, 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 what's it going to look like? We're giving you all the information that we have. And so yeah. the more you can ask us and the more information you can give us about how your timeline's evolving, if you're in other processes, all that stuff, then we're trying to help you here. Being as transparent with us as possible is only in your best interest and asking the questions, albeit we might not have all the answers, but we don't always have the foresight for all of that ahead of time. And we've touched on these terms, mega fund and middle market and things like that a number of times yeah. today. Would you guys mind just defining those terms for our listeners and giving us some examples of what size or strategy funds tend to fall within those brackets? Yeah, sure. The way we think about the market is lower middle market, middle market, upper market and mega fund. All of those based on fund size. Lower middle market would be anything under a billion. That's the, generally the case. Middle market, I would say, is like a 1 billion to 4 billion. Uh, upper mm -hmm. middle market is probably like 4 to 10 and then mega is above 10. It is current fund size, not AUM, just because 
places like Carlisle or KKR have been around for so long. Their AUM and have so many strategies. Their AUM is kind of irrelevant and not necessarily a fair way to compare the private equity strategy. And so that's the way that we think about comp ranges is in those general buckets. And the experiences too, and I know we've touched on this a little bit, but it's probably worth saying the experience differences in each role are pretty dramatic too. Yeah, can you speak to that a little bit about the experience differential? Of course. So I think that the way that I like to explain it is that if you think about a big bank like a Morgan Stanley, there's a big wheel. Every single person, every single division is a cog in the wheel. So if you think about the life cycle of a private equity backed process at an investment bank, you have the financial sponsors group that works on it. You have the industry group, you have the credit team, uh, you have Lev Finn, you have all these different groups and each analyst or each person and each team is playing a pretty small role in that large wheel that churns. If you go to a much, much smaller firm, then there's not all those different specialties. And so one person is doing all the work. That's very much the case. If you go to like a lower middle market firm, you're doing everything. You're managing the diligence. They're looking at the quality of earnings. You're looking at all of the various types of diligence that you do, whether it's on the team, whether it's on the market, whether it's on all of those things, insurance diligence, you're managing all the third-party diligence, usually not the lawyers. The lawyers usually are managed by more senior people, but you're doing all that and you're doing that financial analysis and you're writing the investment committee memos along with probably your VP. Um, So you're doing everything. You're a jack of trades. Whereas if you go all the way on the opposite end of the spectrum, so like the 10 billion and above, you're really kind of like banking 2.0 is not a bad way to think about it because you're Uh really only responsible for providing the financial outputs for memos and things like that and having that as your skill set. But you're really more of a financial engineer than you are really thinking holistically like an investor. And so the skill set, I think some candidates are like, I want to be in a mega fund role because they want the money. But then it's like, well, what do you really want to do with your career? Like, what did you really like about your job? And it goes the same way that bulge bracket private equity firms look to hire from bulge bracket banks because they are structured similarly. Whereas smaller private equity firms would look to hire from regional banks because they're structured similarly. So it makes a whole lot of sense to where you are already on the sell side of what makes most sense transition wise. But I would Mm -hmm. say skill set wise that it has a lot more to do with wearing multiple hats and being not above any task versus having a very defined role. And then geographically too, certain funds just happen to be located certain places. So even if you, if you loved Denver, which Cameron and I do, because we're in Denver and you (laughs) wanted to work for a mega fund stinks to be you because there are no mega funds here we have partners group which is a different beast all of its own but there's not that many mega fund opportunities in the second tier cities because they just have gravitated towards the new york san francisco's boston so those might definitionally put you into a certain path if you want to be in a certain area geographically what is a normal class size of a mega fund and an upper middle market fund because we're huge actually i would say anywhere from like 15 to 20 at a mega fund yeah, I'd say some mega funds are even more. Some mega funds are hiring 15 to 25 because they have so many different yeah. strategies now. Oh, so, and but then, that's across the different strategies. Well, mega funds have different industry groups now, so they can mm. recruit into industry groups instead of just hiring a large class. So I, I think the right number for mega funds is probably like 15 to 25, pretty large band. But then yeah. middle market, it's usually five to 10. And then usually a lower middle market fund, their associate classes are two. Exactly. I think one trend that I think is so fascinating to study and to speak to is that 10 years ago, candidates were proactively calling us nonstop. The market moved. Mm. People heard on cycle, quote unquote, started and our phone was ringing off the hook. Like it was insane. To paint you a picture, Mm. we have a bullpen and there's a phone ringing, cell phones, landlines. Every button is red on every phone and every person's cell phone is blowing up. And then there people would be emailing us of like, I heard blah, 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 interviewing. Can we get an interview? Like it was just a crazy inundation of people who were interested in these opportunities. 
Fast forward to last year, candidates will literally say no. You call them and you say, wow. a bulge bracket firm would like to interview. They're like, no, I'm good. I'm going to go to sleep. It's like 2 a.m. right now. Like, Or they won't answer the phone. Or they're like, I'm not going to interview right now. So the amount of candidates who have proactively said, this is crazy. No, thank you. I have wow. confidence I can figure it out has dramatically changed. So wow. phones didn't ring during on cycle. They're responsive to emails. Maybe, maybe not. You're calling them one off, but there's not this crazy inundation of people being like, give me an interview, give me an interview. Give me, this does not happen. And so the marketplace is telling us- Is that us a market that, psychology thing? Is that a timing thing? Is that a, is that a human psychology thing? I think it's what a human psychology thing. Yeah. Gen Z. Gen Z. They know how to psych- say no. They know how to say no. And they're also very empowered to believe that they're going to figure it out. And so mm-hmm. they say no with a lot of conviction, no doubts. And you know, 10 years ago, they thought it was now do or die right now. Now or bust. Oh, like I had the one millennial psychology is the answer is yes. What's the question? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll figure it out. I'll figure it out later. Yeah. I'll figure yeah. it out later. And they, they say no. And so they're telling us, I want to be able to drive this process on my timeline. Who are mm. you to say that you get to be the one deciding it? Right. And so go by side is kind of reacting to that and be like, oh, this is a good point. You guys are telling us <laughs> that you don't really want the world to tell you what to be, who to be, when to be it. You want to be able to engage with it and become who you want to become. And so go by side is a very much of an ongoing living marketplace that candidates can choose to actively get engaged with when they are ready to think about that. And so it allows them peace of mind for lack of anything else of like this machine is, is moving all along. And whenever I choose to engage in it, I can actively try to make the transition, but you're no longer at the beck and call of the firm. And they've done that on their own. It's almost like they all got together and like decided, Hey guys, let's all decide not to accept interviews during our training. And they're like, Like okay, that's a great idea. Exactly. They like strike and you know, it's moved markets and I have so many opinions about it. I think it's so fascinating, but if you just think about that shift in the market, not only have fewer firms chosen to interview, but candidates have said, no, I'm good. Thank you. And the amount of candidates who said, no, I'm good. Thank you. Especially like the top, top tier candidates Uh that are most highly touted are saying no. And they're saying, I will wait. And they have good data to say no. And the kind of confidence shift is mind blowing to me. Cause like you said, Jen, I could not have imagined I got the interview and I'm like, no, I'm good. I think I can get a job later. If I knew that was a job I wanted. I'm in a panic now, just even envisioning this scenario. Yeah. (laughs) And it's been an evolution broadly that we could say has touched in a handful of ways, but the analysts in a way have banded together to strike on a handful of elements, whether it's having no email days or having required vacation days or having all these things that didn't exist 10 years ago are all Mm -hmm. in place now trying to make these jobs more appealing because the competition is stiffer. The best and the brightest want to do other things. So the banks are like, Mm -hmm. shoot, how do we continue to get the best and the brightest? We'll pay more. We'll guarantee them better lifestyles. We'll promote them early. We'll give them direct associate roles as a first year banker. Like they're trying Mm -hmm. everything they can do to keep talent. And then the private equity firms are trying everything they can do to get talent. But the talent at the end of the day, like they very much feel right now it's their market, which is interesting because you look at a recession coming up and you're like, that's probably going to change. But if we were to talk about it, like Cam and I were anecdotally to say who has the power right now, candidates. It's the candidates. Wow. Wow, That's really interesting. This was absolutely phenomenal. Thank you guys so much for sharing your insight, your wisdom. Um, We definitely will have you back. We are so excited about your (laughs) mission. We are so excited about partnering with you guys in the future. And there's just so much more good stuff to come. We literally have listeners who are in high school. What is the criteria for being able to join this community? Be of like legal age of consent. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Seriously. (laughs) 
18 years old. Sign a contract. (laughs) Uh, So we would say if you have an interest in getting into this field, then you can certainly join Go Buy Side. You're not going to have access to the overall market and the opportunities Mm -hmm. because your experience won't check the relevant. Because you're five. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but like, can you use the resources? Can you leverage our team? Can you use the training materials? Absolutely. We've actually seen a lot of candidates who are seniors and sophomores starting to join Go Buy Side as the recruiting process has kind of earlier and earlier, just because we have a lot of resources there. And also it's just another data point for them to understand what the market looks like. We'll put the link to the Go Buy Side website in our show notes for everyone who's interested in interacting with the platform and joining the community. And again, this is going to be part of a larger series of episodes that we're going to bring Cam and Kate back for. We're definitely going to spend more time talking about the off-cycle recruiting process. And we really want to do a deep dive into the hedge fund recruiting process, specifically for equity long-short hedge funds, because we'll see a lot of a similar applicant pool looking at Mm -hmm. entering that field as entering the private equity field. Um, But guys, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, for sharing your insight and your knowledge. And uh, we can't wait to have you back. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 